Welcome to another Baccio Death Trip episode. It is great to have you with us. Now, Benji, how you doing, man? You all good? It's it's hot here. It's not Australia, Perth, Adelaide Springs hot, but I've acclimatized to the UK weather. So, you know, it's about 28, 29 degrees, sat in an attic, well insulated, uh, with a miniature USB fan my life thank you i don't know why you're wearing the trench coat but whatever makes you comfortable man oh because of the uh, album we're going to be talking about today orgy's candy ass i'm yep. not saying candy ass i i can say it a few times i'll probably switch in it in and out of it but to pay sort of tribute to orgy with this week's introduction i've actually outsourced it oh okay just like lincoln park did for their remix they sent hey jay gordon can you remix this for us Sure, Mike Schneider and Mr. Hahn can do it, but we want you to have a crack. Cool. So I've paid someone on Fiverr to do it. And the brief was, tell me about Orgy's Candy Us. I've got a recording of me reading it for the first time. Yeah. So that's the intro. I just wanted to give you and, and the listeners some context. Is that okay? Yeah, I mean, this is the first time I've heard this. So I, I'm in with the listeners on this one. All right, let's give it a go. Candy Us or Candy Ass. I'm going to say Candy Us. I'm sorry for my Australian accent. Sorry, let me get back into it. Candy Ass is the debut album by Orgy, the name inspired by a drag queen they had met. It was released on August 18, 1998. It is a unique album with plenty of great songs like Stitches and Blue Monday. Candy Ass is no doubt the best album credited to Orgy, which is ranked number 29,029 in overall greatest album chart with a total rank score of 25. I don't know, 25 out of 100 or 50? I don't know. Anyway. Back to the report. Orgy is ranked number 13,322 in the overall artist ranking with a total rank score of 29. I need to find that list. Blue Monday. This song was perceived as the band's gateway to success. According to Spin Magazine, this song is hit of the year for 1999. Many critics credit the success of the album Candy Ass to Blue Monday. Many believed that it is the best song of Orgy. Blue Monday is actually released by English rock band New Order on March 7, 1983. It is a dance song. <laughs> the idea to record their own version came about during Orgy's stay in Lake Tahoe when they saw a copy of New Order's Substance album in a record store. Although Orgy felt unsure about covering the single because of its past success, they however took the cassette home to help them record their own rendering. Stitches Stitches is the band's first single released in 1998 and then re-released the following year due to the popularity of their cover of Blue Monday. Conclusion Although Orgy faced many changes during their 20 years of journey, but Jay Gordon is the integral part of the band. On October 30, 2010, Jay released a statement via his official Facebook profile stating that he still owns the Orgy and, <laughs> and busy in creating new material for the band. Gordon said, Everyone has been so busy with their different projects, I figured this was the only way for me to continue on with the same name. I started this band and I don't want to let it fall to the wayside completely. So Benji, looking at some of the bands we've talked about, we talked about Fear Factory and now we're talking about Orgy. These bands have this sort of one member who owns the name doing what they want with the project now. Can you think of any other bands that have the same sort of situation going on at the moment? Right, so that was your intro. It's amazing, Reese. Like, it... it it's very cute. It's very endearing hearing you read for the first time. Thanks, mate. And I actually recorded that last week, which um, is quite interesting given, given what's happening in your current life. Yeah. <laughs> That's honestly last week's recording. So you went on to Fiverr. 
Yeah, went, yeah. So I went on to Fiverr. Yeah. And I just said I looked for someone to who was a writer, and I said, you know, I'll give you ten bucks. Can you write something about orgy? And yeah. they said, yes. And I said, thanks so much. And then I read it, and now that's the intro. So that that's pretty much copied and pasted from fucking Wikipedia. You know that, right? No, is it really? Yeah. <laughs> It's not really, is it? No, 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 it's true. Can you share your screen for a minute? Share your screen oh for a minute. God, oh, Lord. Oh, I got ripped. You got okay. absolutely grifted there. What was that? There was that line in particular that you read out. <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> I didn't even check. What was that fucking... Look at... Can you read that line out for me, please? On October 30, 2010, Jay Gordon released a statement via his official Facebook profile stating that he still owns the orgy... Oh, to be fair, here it says he still owns the orgy name. Yeah. This person took the word name out. So he still owns the orgy and okay. wants to continue creating new material for the band. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, I've been scammed. <laughs> <laughs> Get on the trust pilot really quick. Get on the trust pilot really quick. Do I – so just in regards oh, to oh, – Jesus, I'm an idiot. No, you're not. This you're is all exactly right. Like, no, no, this is exactly – this is exactly like when I – was trying to pitch woo to a girl who loved a certain movie, Son of the Mask. So I bought this script online at eBay. And so I bought it and it was signed by the actors. And I was like, this is fucking incredible. And then my friend at uni was like, you're an idiot. Like, you paid a hundred bucks for this. This could be just anyone. And I, I got it. It arrived and it was clearly just some dude with a printer who just forged signatures. So I was like, well, it's such a great concept. I can't give this up. Found the same movie, the, the same script. Same actors had signed it, but this time I got the certificate of authenticity. But when I got this certificate of authenticity, it was clearly just someone had done it with word art. <laughs> and I was like, I spent 300 bucks on this thing now. Like, I've, yeah, so I, I, gave it, I gave it to her. No, I, I, I would say that it's not real either. <laughs> unless, Jamie, unless Jamie Kennedy's now rubber stamping his signature because he's that big of a deal. Um, so an answer to the question that you... Ask someone else to write, and they've clearly just jumped onto Wikipedia. <laughs> so, yeah, Fear Factory, Orgy. I'm trying to think of other bands, you know. There was a big kind of uh, brouhaha originally between Sepultura and uh, Max Cavalera when they unceremoniously split, because I think a lot of people would consider that uh, Sepultura is in effect Max Cavalera, which is unfair to all of the other band members at the time, uh, Paulo Jr., Igor Cavalera, Max's brother, and Andreas Kisser. Ooh, I hear some pantomime boos in the background as I mentioned that name. So yeah, then Max ended up doing calling his band Soulfly, which we discussed during the Deftones episode, was a name that he brought up when he did Head Up with Chino Marino. There's fucking Pink Floyd's always a bit of a drama regarding like trademarks and stuff like that. Syntax, that's always a drama just regarding Black Flag. Black Flag's one as well. I think Fear Factory's probably like one of the biggest ones, but I'm sure that there's listeners out there who um, can clarify or even have their own kind of ideas of, of band names and stuff like that. Yeah, it's um, I'm I'm getting a real case of PTSD. I'm talking about trademarks and stuff like that, just because of the shit that struggles with syntax seem to be going through. But 
we're dealing with it and we're not here to talk about that we're here to talk about orgy and which i listened to that album recently now when i was in college i was a bit i was an idiot and i wouldn't listen to the album because certain you know certain people were into it i you know i thought it was you know, I'm not going to say the phrase, but I was young, dumb, and didn't realize that certain words have very hurtful connotations. But when you're younger, you sling that shit out because you think you're edgy. So I, I didn't kind of listen to that too much because I thought it was flamboyant, shall we say. Uh, and I've always listened to like Blue Monday because it's always been like the kind of definitive orgy track. It's, but it's it's sad that I, it took all this time for me to actually sit down and give uh, Candy Ass a decent listen because it's actually really fucking good and I can understand the appeal. It's more melodic than perhaps all the other new metal that was coming out at the time. Uh, it's got that kind of groovy electronica element which was very popular with like Prodigy's Fat of the Land and stuff like that at the time. Had a really good kind of hybrid. It wasn't completely industrial compared to, say, Nine Inch Nails, uh, who released a Fragile a year later, which is definitely an album I'd like to pick up upon at some point during our series. And it's just really nice and melodic. And you can hear, with Jay Gordon's vocals, touches of Jonathan Davies' kind of vocals, which I, I would imagine is maybe part of the reason why Korn kind of gravitated a lot towards... Um, orgy and towards Jay Gordon because they share a kind of similar tonality when it comes to the more melodic aspects of their singing. Yeah, so when Korn moved to LA, Jay would go to their shows and he said he became friends with Korn and Korn wanted Orgy to be the first signing on their label, the elementary label. I also think there's a part of that, and I'm sure I've talked about this in an earlier podcast, when you have a band that's that's good but so different, you feel a bit more camaraderie because they're not really going to essentially like halve your audience. They're not going to divide your audience. It's enough. No. If Gojira into Meshuga into Slipknot had, like, if that was the bill, some people could be quite sick of that by the end of it. It's like, all right, we get it. It's loud. It's noisy. We get it. You know, but if you had Linkin Park to Orgy to Corn, it's like, well, there's enough difference there that I can kind of, my ears aren't totally burnt out. But they used to all sort of hang out together. Orgy, Deftones, um, Linkin Park. So I actually didn't realize there was such a gang. Like that whole family values tour was their friendship group. And then Ice Cube was along for the ride as well. Yeah, it was effectively their family, wasn't it? Including, what's his name, Mark McGuire from Sugar Ray, who always seems to be doing the rounds whenever MTV would do kind of live uh live things from like LA or kind of like, yeah, you know, we're on the set or we're at a pool party with, with corn. He always seems to just do the rounds. He almost kind of like he was a de facto special correspondent for MTV's headbanger balls, uh, uh, headbanger balls, headbangers ball at some point in time. Headbanger balls is a completely different show. It's the um, Cannibal Corpse song. Yeah, you have to be uh, eighteen years or over to check that one out. Yeah, so Papa Roach was there as well. But you can imagine if you've got a band like Static X, who, for the record, I absolutely love. Yeah. But they're doing the same sort of electronica kind of with live instruments sort of vibe. 
you can imagine why they feel like such outsiders because you go into this fully formed scene of like, hey, there's Papa Roach and there's Snot and there's Mark McGuire, Mark McGrath, I think Mark McGrath, the poor man Scott Ian. Mark McGuire was the baseball player. And then you've got Deftones and Court, all these bands blowing up and you're like, oh, I don't know where we fit in. So we're just, you know, oh, Slipknot might have felt like the outsiders. I think I remember Clown talking about how no one wanted to talk to them backstage. They just wanted to huff dead crows and more power to them. I agree. This album is, is quite good. I listened to it at the time. I listened to it uh, when it came out. Or after I saw Family Values, I went and I got it through my uh, scamming through Sanity and Leading Edge, burnt it, and then uh, printed the cover off on Microsoft Excel, trimmed it down. Love it. Beautiful. I just wish it had a bit more grit, like a bit more noise, a bit more feedback. It's so sort of refined and it's great songwriting and it's incredible. Like I have a real respect for anyone who's doing that pre-2000 electronic music because they kind of learned before free VST plugins and YouTube tutorials and they seem like geeks who would just really try and figure shit out. Can you imagine, like think about the fucking stuff you have to do now on a Mac just to get GarageBand to work. It's pretty simple but there's still a few glitches here and there and a lot of YouTubing and, and reading of the manuals. F1, the paperclip comes up for help. But trying to organize on these like fucking... Early Max. Not even that, Reese. I remember I uh, watching the prodigy, seeing the prodigy a couple of times, and I think that um, they have scaled down their rig uh, quite a lot from earlier times. But fuck, you would um, you'd see them come on stage, and then you would see like just racks, just racks of either synthesizers or or you know just machines, you know, so. They weren't plugins on a laptop. They were actually industrial-sized pieces of equipment that they were just racked. Liam Howlett would just be, like, encased in what feels like a fucking coffin of electronic gear, you know, where, oh, I have to use an 808. All right, cool, but then the 808 has to go through this processor, so I have to go to a studio and pull out that processor from the rack and then put it, you know, in the rack when I'm doing a live show. So, yeah, they're... A lot of merit going towards those kind of artists that had that electronica aspect to it. In a similar way to how, say, DJs like DJ Shadow, RJD2 and stuff like that, um, even Carl Cox looking at the UK dance scene, the things that they did with, like, turntables and, you know, was absolutely incredible. I mean, Carl Cox uh, was one of the first DJs that took four turntables and used four separate um, records to mix one song together, which at the time was never heard of. But then we come across as kind of, it kind of sounds like we're coming across, sorry, as people that are like, oh, you know, kids have it easy these days, but you got to give respect where respect is due. And I think it was, it was the, at that time, Adopting that kind of element of music, the electronica aspect. I mean, we know that Nine Inch Nails and we know that Fear Factory adopted a more industrial type sound. And I think with Orgy, had they adopted that that grittiness that you were after, would that have made them more and you know in the industrial music realm of things? It's the fact that there isn't that grittiness, but there's that kind of slick sheen 
and we will talk about their set at the Family Values Tour, speaking about slick and sheen looks. That kind of high-end aspect leads more into the electronica side of things, don't you think? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. It's probably just a little bit too schmick for my ears. Like, I just want something that's a little bit raw. And they do have live instruments. So even just holding the guitar to an amp just for a millisecond would have been something a bit more live feeling for me. I feel like th- this album gets to a certain point and never pushes past that. It's like that stained mud shovel video, man. There's that glass ceiling. I think that's what they were talking about. Alan Lewis would be one for the glass ceiling, wouldn't he? What about that Godsmack video for Awake where they're playing inside of a wrestling steel cage and everyone's just trying to tear away, which kind of felt like a bit of a ripoff of Nine Inch Nails' Wish with the same kind of concept, except with Nine Inch Nails, it looked more like Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and with Awake, it looked more like bloody... Raw versus SmackDown 2006. Slick and Sheen, you've asked a question here on the run sheet, Reese. Why do they look like they've been soaked in cum during their Family Values 98 sake? <laughs> Elaborate, if you will. Well, I don't know if I have to. Have a look at it. So when we pick this album, I start my research, and which is really just running to the album. Then I sort of listen to some interviews. But nothing, man, I'll be honest, nothing fills my heart with more dread that when I'm researching an album and I see there is a two-hour-plus doco on YouTube and I I fucking know I'm going to end up watching it all and I have to watch it all. And it's like that early home video stuff where they just put everything in there and there is no editing. And you talked about learning and being young and using derogatory terms. Those guys are throwing that term around a lot. A lot, a lot, a lot. But you can see them just kind of like fluffy head walking through the house and all that sort of stuff. But then when they go out, it's just hair gel and shininess and this androgynous sort of feel, which I, I, I get. But they just look drenched. Maybe they're the front row for the Ramstein set. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I seem to think that the androgyny was a very big uh, was a very big aspect in terms of their aesthetic, wasn't it? If you look at the Blue Monday video, there you know a lot of kind of almost like a nod to kind of the glam rock movement, you know, or or the cock rock movement of the eighties. A lot of makeup, a lot of playing around with kind of like masculine identity and stuff like that. I mean, I, I watched that video and I, my takeaway isn't, oh, look at the androgyny there. My takeaway is like, fucking hell, you can tell how close it was to Y2K just by that video alone. The amount of frosted tips, the amount of kind of silvery looking clothing, baggy jeans, you know, those glow gel um, neck bands. They're not even neck bands, you know, they're like glow sticks that you can bend and fold to making the wristbands and stuff like that around the neck, you know, looking like they went and bought a whole bunch of their clothing from uh, the Cyberdog store at Camden Market and stuff like that. There's, yeah, there's a lot, a lot going on with that video and a lot going on with their aesthetic. But I think perhaps that was also a, a conscious effort for them to move away from the archetype, you know, stereotypical 
this is how a metal band or this is how a new metal band should look, you know, because we've, we've spoken about this a number of times now, Reese, about the kind of aesthetic when it comes to uh, new metal fashion, be it baggy jeans, wallet chains, and all of that kind of stuff. So maybe it was for them a conscious effort. Maybe they did that as a form of antagonism as well. I know that in the UK, when Placebo first came out, Brian Molko also played around with that kind of androgynous look uh, with the uh, with, with the, the makeup and the manliner and the kind of silvery lipstick and stuff like that, which would maybe pay homage to the glam rock movement a little bit. But I also like to think that it was also a real form of antagonism towards toxic masculinity before the phrase toxic masculinity made it into common vernacular. Some big thoughts going on on this podcast, man. Some absolutely big thoughts. <laughs> yeah, but obviously Jay Gordon is the brains of the operation. Yeah. And he's obviously a, a different kind of person to the corn people. You're not going to go to Fieldy for your Lincoln Park remix. No. You can tell, like, Jay Gordon seems to be what, like, he's still doing a lot of production now and a lot of so- and a lot of songwriting. So he seems to be the guy's like, no, I'm going to knuckle down, learn this hardware, learn this software, figure this out. You know, I'll be under the table rewiring something. Whereas Fieldy's still walking around his mansion, slapping the bass, you know, and making protein shakes. So you can tell they're, they're, they're kind of wired differently. You'd imagine those corn guys. But I still think Jonathan Davis or Jay Devil, as you might know him, this might have been his first taste of EDM. Like, so he's on the song Revival, which is pretty good. And he yep. kind of creeps out in the family value set. <laughs> and he does his little skitting and a scatting and a bipping and a bopping. Then he goes on to do some... It, like, he was a DJ in Bakersfield before this. But he goes on to do Killbot. And, like, they did stuff with Skrillex. And, yeah, I think Korn did stuff with Skrillex. Killbot did something with Skrillex. But, yeah, so I think he's loved EDM since Orgy, you'd imagine. I know I've mentioned them before, but I do feel that the prodigy opened up a lot more doors when it came to combining electronic music with that heavier element. I recall a advert on MTV where Dave Grohl was talking about how much he loved electronica, especially the prodigy and seeing Foo Fighters open for prodigy um, on UK tour dates. It's a pretty big thing, man. That's like the, the drummer from Nirvana is opening for Keith Flint. Liam Howlett, Maxim, uh, Leroy Thornhill, I think, was still in the band at the time as well. I think it was Leroy Jenkins. Sorry to correct you. Oh, no. Okay, my mistake. My mistake. I think thanks to The Prodigy, uh, maybe a lot of bands looked at it and went, actually, we can cross over and there's going to be big crossover appeal. In a sense where we spoke about groove metal not too long ago, how that had a crossover appeal, like White Zombie. White Zombie was heavy enough for the uh, metal fans, but it had enough of a groove element for more the dance fans. Or if you've had a chance to watch uh, the Static X documentary on YouTube, uh, where are we and what date it is, uh, the way that someone described Static X's music was that moshing at the front, shaking your ass at the back, which is a great analogy for like the the evil disco party aspect of it. So I think that maybe, I think maybe with Orgy, they saw that and ran with it. And then I think 
with that in mind, Orgy begot a whole bunch of other bands that saw we can combine an overt electronic aspect to our music uh, with 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 the kind of tenets of new metal or metal or alternative metal or alternative rock. Because when I listened to Orgy, the next thing I listened to was Commencement by Dead Sea with Eli, uh, Elijah Blue, who happens to be Cher's son. There you go. So Dead Sea, key to Gramercy Park. Took me fucking 28 episodes to learn something on this podcast, but I've done it and I will retain that. The guy from that band is that person's relative. Got it. It's in my brain now. I will not forget. You got it. But is Jonathan Davies uh, a trendsetter then? Uh, Some people might call it forecasting these days because he dropped into adding dubstep to Korn's kind of style of music. Some people might say it didn't work. Some people say it might work. That's that's all subjective. But the I'll, fact say, that, and I'll say it didn't work. Okay, but the fact is that he tried something very different on a mainstream level when they could have easily just, like, carried on doing the same old thing that Korn does. The same old, same old, same old, you know. Sometimes it works for bands. Deftones, White Pony, incorporating some completely different elements there. And it absolutely did um, when they incorporated the electronic aspects. With Korn, perhaps not. It was fun. Definitely a fun experiment. Do not get me wrong there whatsoever. So perhaps when he saw or heard Orgy for the first time, it was like, yeah, I can get into this. This is going to be really good. Really good. Kind of like how Fred Durst was trying to approach both Puddle of Mud and Stained. Like, yeah, yeah, these guys are going to be great. Grab my balls. <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, Fred Durst is doing that to those bands who are similar to a degree. Whereas Corn yeah. sort of pushing and promoting Orgy is awesome. Like, Jonathan Davis sounds like a pretty good dude. He just literally doesn't give a fuck. He's helped many, many bands. A lot of people talk about him fondly, especially early coming up in the scene. So... They seem to be real hometown heroes, really well-respected before they blew up into what they are currently, you know, and then at their peak was next level. But the Korn fandom is still real, man. But let's talk more about this album, though. Is this a rare instance where a cover is better than the original? Is this mainly because of the production? We're talking about Blue Monday by... by Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. We're not talking about Stitches. Um... We're not talking about Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Car by the legendary Taproot. Well, yeah, nothing, nothing's going to top that. I mean, that's just perfection. That's a difficult one because I think there are going to be purists out there that will always say that Blue Monday is Blue Monday. It was like one of the biggest selling 12 inches of all time, um, which is what your mum said. Oi! Oh, man. <laughs> one of us had to do it. You lobbed it up and we were both going to go for the alley-oop. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a minute. Um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, but they're, they're very different takes on the same song. I like the fact that with Orgy, it stayed true to the original. It wasn't like, this is a reinterpretation. It was like, no, this is, this is how the song was meant to sound. But then they added their own sort of spin on it, which is great. Now, I am ambivalent sometimes when it comes to covers. 
There are some really cool covers that I enjoy, like William Shatner doing Common People is a great cover, for example. But then it's sometimes awful when you see like local bands try and cover a song that's like there's there's no real difference here whatsoever. Why are you doing this? Um, have you not got enough songs yourself? Well, it, it kind of happens with Triple J, the youth broadcaster here. They have a thing called Like A Version and every Friday a band... I'm will... familiar with Like A Version. Yeah. And so you'll have bands who do that. They'll play their song and they'll do the cover and the cover will blow up and it'll be their top streamed track on Spotify and they're expected to play that forever in their set. Like that's their song now. It's like, oh, we just did this as a throwaway, but now we've got to keep doing it. But I've, I'm really interested in looking at where bands play certain songs in recent sets, like especially now 20 years after the fact. Where do you reckon Orgy are playing Blue Monday in their sets? Uh, towards the end. Last every single time. Every single time. Yeah, they're not going to make the mistake that the Libertines made uh, when me and Maeve saw them at Leeds Festival, which was the top end of their set was just all the bangers, all the popular ones, and then the middle of the set was kind of like all the newer kind of material, and then one or two of the older songs at the end, and it's like, well, you've played most of the hits to begin with, so there's no real reason for me to stick around and watch the rest of it. If I'm a diehard fan, yeah, but, you know, it's getting late now, we're all getting older, we're not camping, we want to get home, so like, yeah, we've, we've, we've listened to Up the Bracket. The bill's on at 8.30? Yeah, yeah, exactly, you know, that, that bloody cup of Milo isn't going to make itself, is it? No, sir. EastEnders isn't going to record itself on the VCR, is it now? No, it's not, but that's why we've got TiVo. When you talked about um, before that the Prodigy sort of mixed that live music with electronics and, and Orgy do it, and they do it very, very well live from the videos that I saw. Let's do some drummer chat because I know that's what you love, Benji, and the listeners love it, you know. Andy, keen drummer, he loves it. Oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to this. No, really, it, people need to pay more respect to the drummer of an electronic band because you have to play in time. There is nowhere to hide. If you drop the beat, there is nowhere to hide. Plus, you're relying on, if you're not a big band, if you're up and coming and you don't have in-ear monitors, you're relying on a click track. And click tracks can be tricky because if you're in time, you can't really hear them unless they're a samba beat because it's one, two, three, four, one, two, three. But if you're hitting on those beats, you're like, well, I can't hear it. So you have to kind of slow down to hear hear it unless it's blaring. So you're also, but you're also relying kind of on the fallback system of your shitty pub or the monitors somewhere there. So it's it's really, really tricky to do and to be in sync with all the arpeggios going through the synth and that sort of thing. So it's easy for the guitarist and the bassist. Fucking look at the drummer, guys, of any electronic band. It's tricky shit. Or maybe because I'm very untalented. Is, is this just another one of those moments on the podcast where you're talking about the fact that drummers get very little respect compared to other i mean the amount of jokes i hear about drummers is ridiculous absolutely ridiculous man i mean what's your what's what's your favorite drummer joke go on um how do you know a drummer's at your door <laughs> because the beat is off <laughs> <laughs> the knocking's at a time uh, no i don't have that with drummers i think people will naturally look at what what's most interesting i just think there's a lot going on mentally and um technically with drummers playing to backing tracks and synths and stuff that they have to play those arpeggios they don't work unless they're in a certain you know beats per minute so that drummer has to be at 112 beats per minute i know of some drummers who have the click 
and the metronome in their stool so they can hear it. They can feel that on their rectum. Uh, that's dedication to music that you, you will get, yeah. Like rugby players getting uh, anesthetic injected into their testicles so they can be lifted up, hoisted up. Drummers are getting a vibrating stool. Actually, I think it was just a Mick Fleetwood thing and I I think it was more of a pleasure thing. But <laughs> Man, we are going off the rails. Do you want to compose yourself while we go into an advert? Now, regarding this advert, I mean, we've been talking about androgyny and everything like that. And uh, funnily enough, uh, here in Europe, we've had a bit of a problem with Brexit, but between myself and uh, some delegates I know in France, we've gotten together, we're, we're cool now, and uh, we've actually uh, got a sponsorship from a fragrance direct from France. Check it out. J'appris ma pelle. J'appris ma pelle. J'appris ma pelle. J'appris ma pelle. En Suède, j'ai attrapé une corde et je l'ai attachée. En Suède, j'ai attrapé une corde et je l'ai attachée. C'est une pédante. C'est une pédante. Elle a dit. Boulette d'amour. Boulette d'amour. Ta murder est comme. Un gâteau au chocolat. Et ton cool. Sent la rose. Mede dans un sac, un parfum pour les têtes de bois, ecstatic. That's wonderful. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, if you would like to translate that, adds on the postcard, and the winner just gets the fact that they're fluent and passed their GCSE in French. Fuck, what has this show become? Everything now needs a run-up or an introduction. Fucking ar- artistic, mate. This show has become artistic and cultural through... Um, <laughs> through Love Dumps the Fragrance from France. Well, speaking of being creative and artistry, what's your favourite 1992 movie called Candyman? Uh, Candyman. Yeah, Candyman is a great movie and it's one of my favourites under the title of Candyman released in 1992. Yeah. What's your favourite orgy album? Candy Ass. Yep, so now you get it, man. What we're going to do is I've got reviews from Orgy's Candy Ass and I've got reviews from the 1992 Bernard Rose's Candyman. Okay? There's a remake. Yes. There's a remake coming out soon too. Yeah, there is. You there have to is. guess. Is it from Candyman? Or is it from Candy Ass? <laughs> She's got a great candy ass. She's got a great candy man. <laughs> Benji. Yes. It's all kind of intriguing. Uh, Candyman. Correct. That was Roger Ebert who said that. Rest of soul. It's a powerful and intelligent idea in a genre not popularly known for them. Candyman. Correct. That was Adam Smith from the uh, Empire Magazine. Does have some low points that range from off the rails unpleasant, boring, to just plain awkward. That's candy ass. Well done, mate. That's three from three. That's from Sputnik Music. Good soundtrack music for an action movie and a great way to scare small children and bunnies away. Candy ass. Oh, my God. You Four out of four. That was by Cyrus Blaze on rateyourmusic.com. Different to rateyourpoo.com. Yeah, much different. Or am I hot or not? Or is my poo hot or not?.com. But beyond that, there isn't much special here. 
I'm gonna say that's Candyman. I'm so sorry, mate. You're close. You're close to getting a hundred percent. That was Unitron on Metal Music Archives talking about Orgy's candy ass. Well, fuck that guy or girl. Last one. It grows increasingly ludicrous as it goes on. That's got to be Candyman. Yes, that is Candyman. That was Brian yeah. Costello for Common Sense Media, mate. So well done. That's what That's six out of seven. Yeah, I mean, it does or help. Five that, out of six. It does help that Candyman is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Up there, uh, in terms of early to mid nineties movies, horror movies. Sorry. It's up there with Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs, which is where the hip-hop group got their name from. Jurassic 5? No, Wu-Tang. What have Cold Chamber and Orgy got in common? Yeah, so Jay played keyboards on a track, um, Burgundy, I'm almost certain, and Amir, um, Amir of the Desert, where they talk about circumcision, was in Orgy. He played percussion synth and keyboards on some tracks. Yeah, so that's Amir of the Desert from Cold Chamber. But do you know what Amir's name is? It's Amir Derak. Yeah, do you know what that means? No. I'm here to rock. Amir Derak. Oh, my Lord. Because <laughs> his real name's Davidson, isn't it? It's something like that, yeah. Amir, Amir Derak. That's absolutely brilliant. Uh, was there a close connection between Cold Chamber and Orgy just because of... Um, their link within the California music scene. You'd think that you'd think that they are quite similar in their kind of well, obviously, evidently not their sound, but they're definitely look-wise they're similar is what I'm trying to get at. I don't think there's any possible way. I, I think they shared stockings on the arms for sure. Yeah. Well, I didn't see them on that two-hour-plus documentary that I watched, but. Do you know who I did see? I saw two people that you would know. Go I on. did see two people. I saw Dryden from Alien Ant Farm. Nice. And, hey, hey, listener, fucking write in and tell me if you agree. Alien Ant Farm song movies fucking rules. That song is so good. Fucking come at me if you disagree. I will fight you in the car park. And the other person I saw was Tommy from Spine Shank. Got him. Uh, if anything, the takeaway from this podcast is that. Orgy, candy ass, ooh, that is so Y2K. It's just, they're ticking all of the kind of boxes when it comes to millennial fashion, millennial sounds, just the gamut. I mean, I, I, reg I again, regret the fact that it took me years to sit down and listen to it from start to finish because in terms of their aesthetic, it was, wasn't something that uh, appealed to me back in the beginning when I was just a dumb kid uh, and all the way through to, you know, you kind of lose touch and it's like, ah, oh, I didn't listen to that album initially. I know Blue Monday, I know Stitches, there's, there's no need to go into it. But to come back to it, especially with my fascination with, with Nine Inch Nails, with Fear Factory, uh, with, with a whole bunch of, with Prodigy evidently as well, kind of, feels a shame i kind of feel like i missed an opportunity to really kind of get involved and enjoy something and the hypocrisy is the fact that i liked deadsy but i refused to give orgy a, a, a fair go 
And, you know, there's nothing better than Orgy, apparently. I mean, those VHS videos, man, if we can just go on a side note for a minute. Do you think they look back now and think the conduct that they undertook during those kind of, hey, we're wacky backstage at home. Do you think they look back and go, oh, fuck, that might have caused us some problems now? Well, for me, it didn't look like they were doing it to be wacky backstage people. They were just, it looked like a group of friends saying things that a group of friends do. Uh, I I know someone who works in a, a very rough sort of area with doing legal aid and stuff. And they said, the, the jokes they make in the office between their staff are horrendous jokes to um, show a common bond but also to relieve some stress because, you know, you, who else can you joke about this sort of stuff with? Who, you can't talk about it with your housemates. No one will understand it. So your co-workers become this sort of, you know, it becomes very in-jokey and that sort of stuff. That's what it came across as is these in this group of people who just travel around, make music, and they have their own sort of language but they seemed really jovial and happy with each other. So... I think it was a uh, the time and the place. I don't think they were they were mostly saying it to each other, and they were responding well at the time. Uh, they seemed to be quite nice to the fans. So I, I don't. If it was me, I would look back the same way I look back at anything. Go fuck. Why was I wearing that shirt? Why was I wearing that weird shirt that looked like I was wearing two shirts with a, but it was just a black shirt with a long white sleeves like sewn to it why did i think that was okay hey i had, I had one of those as well man it's it was like half a course what you know why was it acceptable to wear marvin the martian boxer shorts uh knowing full well that people are only gonna capture the glimpse of marvin's eyes staring as my baggy skater jeans drop down a certain point on my hips can you imagine it's like there's someone somewhere it was like the you know third year anniversary and it's like all right they put the rose petals down they put on some bon jovi always and then the man like slowly takes off undoes his smp belt undoes his 26 red jeans and then the the girl just has to sit there and like look at these marvin the martian boxer shorts it's like god damn it It, it, (laughs) he uh he keeps on his knee-high socks and dc shoes right absolutely he's backwards orange eco hat it's got to be tough to be a woman growing up and exploring the male body being like, oh, why is this covered in satin? And why does it smell like Lynx Africa in the pubic region? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, and on that note, do we have any... Uh do we have any listener email? Yeah, one guy, Dylan, wrote in and said he was loving the podcast and that he wants us to do Seven Dust Home. Now, I think you were a bit apprehensive about that, but we're doing it now because Dylan... We're doing it now because of the fan service and because Dylan's in a dope band called Nuggies from New Zealand, spelled N-U-G-G-I-E-Z. Check him out. Also, check out his oldest stuff with a band called Black Science. That's uh, that's my plug for Dills. Word up. Cha-cha, bro. Cha-cha. Um, we got some other things from Connor, um, Andy, Paul, the usual people who were just like, I can't remember what they said. Just like, I agree with you on this. I, you know, you're a legend. You're so smart. How are you so articulate? Why do you never mumble or mispronounce words? You know, you're a real incredible host. And I said, thank you so much. I'll pass that message on to Benji. (laughs) The amount of smoke being blown up my ass is ridiculous, mate. I'm about to become a Zeppelin flying through the air. On the next episode of Batshio Death Trip, uh, it's going to be a a treat, an absolute treat. We are going to be talking about Metallica's St. Anger. 
Reese is already face palming as we speak. Just knowing that for the next seven days, I'm going to be knee deep in Metallica. Because I was never much of a fan. I'm going to have to go back through their old catalogue. I'm going to have to listen to Death Magnetic. I'm going to have to watch Some Kind of Monster. And I knew this album was coming up and I've been putting it off. Lars is a tough dude to hang out with for a long period of time. That was very tactfully done. He can also be quite litigious if your name is Napster or Syntax. Uh, But on on top of that, we're going to actually have a guest come in to cover all of your drum talk. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) we will be having Tom Morrison, formerly of God Bows to Math. He's going to be actually uh, with us in, in person, as much of a person you can be in over Zoom. So yeah, look, thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. Uh, always a blast, Reese. No, always good. Uh, thanks so much, Benji. And like we say at the end of most podcasts, you know, support Jamie Kennedy. Yeah, absolutely. This one's for you, Jamie. <laughs>